Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Ryan Jacobson. I get to be one of the pastors here this morning. Um, And please remain standing as you are and recite these words of Shema with me. We say the Shema every week in our services here because as disciples of Christ, we are trying to become more and more like him every day in his relationship with the Father and in his relationship with the world. And this is just one of the ways that we do this is through the Shema. Jesus would have prayed the Shema every night before he went to bed, every day when he woke up, and every time that he approached the scriptures. You'll see some of us raise our pinky as we say the Shema. The reason that we do this is because it reminds us that there's enough power in the tip of God's little finger to change our hearts, to change our minds, and to change our world. So please say these words with me. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Please remain standing just another minute as I read to you from the library that we love from the fourth book of the gospel, fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. But Jesus go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. 
This is the story of God told for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. During this Easter season, we are focusing in on encounters with Jesus told through the eyes and the words of the evangelist John. John's gospel is challenging and unique. What you may notice first about John's gospel is that it does not follow the flow or the flavor of the other three synoptic gospels. And John is rather difficult to interpret. When you pick up a few of the commentaries on John, you see that there's a lot of different approaches to John. Some of the commentators decide to allegorize everything. And so everything within John is meant to be a symbol for something else. And so what you're talking about in John is not actually what you're talking about. You're talking about something else. Other commentators instead decide that you have to take everything in John literally at face value and explore it there. But of course, there are commentators that do take somewhat of a middle of the road approach, finding depth and meaning in both the symbolism and the narrative. And I hope this morning that I'm able to take you down this middle road. But for those of you that know me and have heard me preach before, I love a little bit of historical context. So first, we've got to have a little bit of history. Toward the end of the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, who will not cross into the promised land, decides to give a few parting instructions to his people. Among these instructions is that when the people enter the promised land, they're to go to the region of the Nablus Mountains. When they get there, they're to, to divide the people, divide the tribes in half, send half of them up onto what is known as Mount Gerizim, send the other half up onto Mount Ebal. And when the people are on top of these mountains, they're to shout at each other. And what they shout is both blessings and curses. These blessings are, are things that will come to fruition as the people live within the will of God and their relationship with God and their relationship with the people around them and the relationship with the land. And the curses come to fruition when these things are disregarded. The, shout, the uh, shouts on Mount Gerizim are the blessings. And the shouts on Mount Ebal are the curses. And so from this event forward, Mount Gerizim became known as the Mount of Blessing. And when the people did finally enter the land, and the land is divided, this land around the Nablus Mountains, Mount Gerizim was given to the tribe of Joseph, and specifically to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now we fast forward just a few hundred years to the death of King Solomon. King Solomon died in roughly 930 B.C., and after he died, political partisanship tore the kingdom of Israel apart. The southern kingdom kept its capital in Jerusalem where David had built a palace and where Solomon had built the temple on the top of Mount Moriah. But the northern kingdom still had the idea that Mount Gerizim, this mount of blessing, was the place that the temple should have been to begin with. And so the northern kingdom named Shechem is their capital which is the city at the foot of Mount Gerizim, and they made Mount Gerizim the central place of their worship. Jump forward again a couple hundred years in the year 722, and here come the Assyrians. The Assyrians come in, they destroy the northern kingdom completely, 
And as they do, they take the tribes of Israel from the northern kingdom and they deport them. But they don't only deport those people. They left a few, primarily Ephraim and Manasseh in the region of the Nablus Mountains. And then they bring in five foreign tribes that they'd already conquered. They bring in these five tribes to the place where these remnant Jews still are, and they force them all to marry each other. They force them to mix their blood. They force them to mix their cultures and try to dilute any kind of national identity that any of these people had left. These people, the descendants of these five foreign tribes and these remnant Jews became, uh, became known as the Samaritans. They continued to worship on Mount Gerizim. And as they did so, eventually the southern kingdom too was destroyed this time by the Babylonians. And as the the Babylonians come in, they destroy the temple in Jerusalem. They destroy much of the city, and they too deport most of the southern kingdom. The Persians come along and kill the Babylonians, but the Persians decide to let those from the southern kingdom go back home. And so under the leading of Ezra, the people of Israel return to Jerusalem. And as they return to Jerusalem, they're offered help in rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple by the Samaritans. Ezra refuses the help. Ezra's response is basically that the Samaritans are no longer part of the family of the Jews. Their intermarriage with the other tribes has corrupted their purity. The mixed breed is not welcome. And from that point forward, the Samaritans decide that they must thwart the building of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Shortly after this, the Samaritans also decide that they need to build their own temple. So they start construction on their own temple on the top of Mount Gerizim. They're even blessed and assisted by Alexander the Great. This bad blood between these two tribes just continues and continues, and we have records of different things that happened between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans, <clears throat> excuse me, the Samaritans claim that the Jews have changed the words of Torah to suit their own needs, and the Jews, of course, claim the same of the Samaritans. For anybody that's trying to go on a pilgrimage to either one of these temples, they're hounded by the followers of the other faith. There are even stories of people littering the roads with bones so that the pilgrims approaching the temples would not be able to remain ceremonially clean and be able to practice their rituals at the temple. And of course, violence. Violence between the two tribes increased and increased. Eventually, the Seleucid Empire gains control of the land of both Samaria and Judea. There's a man, the emperor named Antiochus IV, declares himself to be the incarnation of Zeus. And he says that anybody that does not worship him must die. The Samaritans quickly enfold themselves in with Antiochus and disavow the Jews. And the Seleucid persecution of the Jews that follows this event was absolutely brutal. The Jews, however, do get to free themselves through the Maccabean revolt in the mid-2nd century B.C. And the man that led the revolt, Judas Maccabeus, had a nephew named John Hyrcanus. 
John gains power after Judas and decides that he wants to spread his power, that he wants to spread his influence and really take grasp of what he's been given. And so John Hyrcanus decides the first thing that he's going to do is march on Samaria. And being a Jew, he knows that the most devastating thing that he can do to his enemy is destroy the temple. And so the Jews climb Mount Gerizim and tear the temple down stone for stone for stone. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee, but he had to go through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria named Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to Joseph. It's into this centuries-old conflict that Jesus walks. This conflict that is between two tribes that in reality are really distant cousins. This family fight has been going on for years and for years and for years, and it has been absolutely brutal. This is why the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan is such a revolutionary parable, because to the mind of the Jew, there is no such thing as a Good Samaritan. Samaritans were lower than dogs. And to the Samaritan, there's no way that you would ever offer help to those exclusive and elitist Jews that have kicked us to the curb so many times over and over again. The hatred between these tribes can be described as more than their hatred for the Roman occupiers. And yet Jesus walks into Sychar, a village on the outskirts of the capital city of Shechem, at the foot of Mount Gerizim, and he sees a Samaritan woman, and he says, You got something to drink? It's just a little bit more background. The Mishnah is a um, collection of commentary on the scriptures, and the Mishnah includes everything, whether it was a minority opinion or not. It, it throws everything in there. And so there's this funny little phrase in the Mishnah that says, To eat the bread of a Samaritan is to eat the flesh of swine. And shortly following that phrase, you'll find this gem. He that talks too much with women brings evil upon himself, neglects the law of Moses, and at the last will inherit Gehenna. And so according to some people in these times, eating with Samaritans was a bad thing, and talking with a woman was even worse. And so Jesus says to this Samaritan, to this woman, do you have something to drink? Of course, she responds the way she does because of this centuries-old history. She says, me, give you something to drink. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. I'm a woman. You're asking me for a drink. And this exchange begins a conversation that defines one of the themes that we find throughout the book of John. There is no barrier, there is no boundary, there's no division between you and the Father, between you and the Christ, between you and the Spirit, and especially there is no barrier between you and your neighbor. From here, the conversation can be broken up into roughly four parts. The first three have to do with different barriers. 
The first is the matter of water. Jesus initiates this conversation by asking for water, but he quickly shifts and offers her living water instead. For both the Jew and the Samaritan, water has significance on multiple levels. Of course, water is the basis of life and that which sustains us, especially for a generation or a culture that has been formed by generations in the desert. But the other thing about water is that it's that which cleanses us. Physically, of course, but it's also what cleanses us spiritually. And this well that we are sitting at with Jesus and this woman is Jacob's well. Commentator Jerry Borchert says that, there, that here John uses Jacob as a stand-in to represent all of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and jo- uh, Jacob. And that in this, it represents the totality of... Of this faith, this Abrahamic faith, whether Jew or Gentile, or Jew or Samaritan. So, this water from this well is that that represents Torah. This water is the water of commandment. This water is the water of the rules, the boundaries. This well represents the very foundation of faith in the one God for both of these people in the way that they've expressed it for centuries. And yet, Jesus' offer of living water implies that this well is not enough. These religious rules of Torah have been important and necessary in the formation of these tribes, but these rules of Torah have also been used to establish superiority and separation. So Jesus offers a drink of living water. He offers this living water's cleansing purity. And he says that this living water will bring about a spring in you that will pour life out, eternal life, to those around you. The conversation then takes a turn to the woman's marital history. She's had five husbands and she's not married to a current partner. Gerard Sloyan, another commentator, posits that there may be some interesting symbolism occurring here. Remember that when the tribes of the northern kingdom were deported, the Assyrians brought in their five foreign tribes. Those five foreign tribes brought their five foreign gods. So Sloyan thinks that maybe these five husbands represent these other five gods that the people of Samaria were forced to marry. And that this sixth man, the man that she's not yet married to, is this relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's been there throughout the whole thing, but has sometimes been put to the side. And if this is the case, then Jesus is addressing yet another religious boundary. The first boundary with the water was this kind of internal expectation of who we must be and how clean we must be to approach God. The second religious boundary is that which makes us, us, and them, them. In this conversation, Jesus is offering inclusion to a people that have been promiscuous with their gods. People that would typically be considered them. But even if we take this story at face value and say that the five husbands are just five husbands, Jesus' offer of inclusion still stands. Your sexual purity, your ability to maintain a marriage, or even five marriages will not stand in the way of an invitation of living water from the Christ. 
And the third barrier, which mountain is the mountain? Is it Gerizim or is it Jerusalem? Where is it that God wants us to worship? Which priests are the right priests? Which practices are the right practices? And I love Jesus' answer here. Neither. Both. Jesus says that what matters is that God has been active. Bringing salvation from the birth of this story. Bringing salvation from the birth of this world in all people. God is active in our history and God is active in our present. And if you want to worship this God, you need to only see the Spirit at work within yourself, within those around you. This is the worshiping in spirit and truth. And so Jesus transcends each of these boundaries. These ethnic, these moral, ethical, tribal, religious boundaries. Jesus steps over each of them. And this is the only instance in the Gospels where Jesus explicitly, uh, explicitly proclaims his Messiahship. This is the only time in the Gospels that he does it. And it's with a woman. It's with a Samaritan. It's with somebody from a tribe that's had five other gods. It's with a woman that has had five different husbands. And she's the one that Jesus says, I am the Messiah to. He transcends the internal expectations that have been placed on him. He transcends the external lines in the sand. He moves beyond the boundary-driven thinking of his people and of his day in order to extend an invitation to this woman, woman, later in the story to her people. And as I mentioned before we said the Shema, we're here because we're seeking to become more and more like Jesus every day in his relationship with his father and in his relationship with his neighbors. So I offer some parting questions. Which barriers do you need to transcend? What barriers do we as a community and as a church need to transcend? What are our internal expectations of who we are and how we're made clean so that we can relate to God? And what are our expectations of ourselves and others that keep us from talking to the others? After I pray to close the sermon, we will pass the peace as we normally do on Sunday mornings. But this morning I extend a little extra invitation to you in this time. And just a small act this morning to acknowledge our own need to break our barriers. I ask you to find somebody in the room that you've not met before. To take just a minute or two to start to get to know them. And maybe the more brave among you might even invite them over for dinner. Take a moment and get to know somebody that it's not a big barrier. There's not a lot of barriers between us in this room, but there are people that even I have not met in this room. And so I hope in this small act of breaking some kind of barrier, we recognize the need to break the larger ones around us. So please, please pray with me. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who gives us life, who sustains us with living water, and brings us to this very moment. We thank you, Father, 
for the gift of your Son, for this gift of God, as it says in the Scripture. We thank you, Father, for this Spirit, for this truth. We ask you, Father, to help us become more aware of that which separates us from you and separates us from our neighbors. And help us to realize that these things that we see separating us aren't really there in the first place. Help us to transcend these barriers, these boundaries, and help us to step over them as given in the example by Jesus. Help us to extend this invitation of living water, of life, to all of our neighbors. We bless you, Father, for who you are and who you've made us to be, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.